Playback on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Hello, good morning, August Fulchestach to Playback. Evelyn O'Rourke here sitting in for Sinead. And on this week's show, another busy, noisy and scrappy week for RTE as the crisis rumbles on. We had a frank, very useful meeting as far as I'm concerned. I told the minister, set out a little bit about my plans. I just want to say to audiences of RTE, my job is to restore trust trusted this organisation um, and that's what I'll try and do and I'll be setting out a lot more detail on Monday about how we intend to do that. The new incoming Director General Kevin Backhurst speaking to reporters. In the West Bank, mourners fill the streets as Israel ends its assault. Well I went into the camp looking at the damage and it is significant. And we mark the hottest days the world has recorded and Mother Nature has never seemed so precious. For the first time in recorded history, the temperature of the globe has gone above 17 degrees, the average temperature across the world. So to begin, the crisis at RTE dominated the headlines again this week, with much discussion around barter counts, flip-flops, Toy Show the Musical and more, as station bosses faced politicians again. There's loads of issues. 2.2 million lost on the Toy Show the Musical. 4,956 euros 73 cents spent on 200 pairs of Havi Anianis. Havi Anianthers? Havi Anianis flip-flops. So that's 30 quid a flip-flop. Patricia, did, have you ever bought a pair of flip-flops? Yes, I oh. have. How much? 99 cents. <sighs> anyway... The week was kind of split into two. The first part was the build-up to the Arachthus Media Committee grilling, where more documentation was submitted. Here, Minister for Finance Michael McGrath had this to say on Wednesday morning, before the hearings, to Mary Wilson. Full disclosure and transparency is absolutely required. You know, this controversy is going on now for the last two weeks. It's always deeply unfortunate when you have to go back before an Oireachtas committee and correct information. Uh, We all make mistakes. Uh, It does raise the stakes. They need to come before the committee today and just reveal all the information that they have. Uh, They need to lance the boil and to move through all of that and move on from there. By the time RT management trooped into the Arachthus hearing and coverage began, callers into Liveline were not impressed. I'm browned off jobs, the whole lot of it. Small businesses, and I'm probably speaking for thousands around the country, people like me, right at this minute in time, Joe, are browned off. Mm-hmm. When you see everything that's gone on in the last week, now it's getting worse. I was, I was browned off enough last week when it started. And now when you look at this, <laughs> five grand for Havana flip-flops and two grand for balloons for a summer party. Joe, hold on a minute now. That galls, sickens people like myself mm-hmm. that are in business, Joe. Joe carried much of the committee's discussions live on the show and Barry Lennon was on hand to explain. We'll go over to the committee. This is Breed O'Keefe, the former Chief the Financial Officer in RTE. As CFO, I work side by side with the RTE internal solicitor on the renewal of talent contracts. And finally, the barter trading account based off my recollections. Barter trading is a standard industry mechanism for selling surplus advertising airtime, which a broadcaster cannot sell it itself. RTE engaged a UK barter agent, Astus, whose business is to deliver value through the media buying process in order to generate additional commercial revenue. RTE Finance had financial control of the barter account and received regular statements from the barter company. Operational control of the barter account was with the RTE Commercial Department. Both income and expenditure from barter trading was recorded in the RTE accounts and was accounted for each month. Okay, okay uh, Barry, let's, uh, let's come back. Let's talk to Barry Lennon. Barry Lennon, presenter, tell us, Barry, what, what does all that mean for... 
people who haven't a clue what's going on. Yeah, well, Brida O'Keefe, she's saying there that she was not party to any agreement to underwrite this tri-party uh, deal between Ryan Tuberty, RTE and Renault, that there was no such suggestion upon when she was leaving office. Okay. Upon Miss O'Keefe leaving office, that she only learned that RTE had underwritten this agreement when she read it in the papers uh, two weeks ago. She also says critically as well that she was aware of a barter account. Yeah. Uh, so that was her, okay. um, her evidence there. Okay, it's ongoing now. Barry will keep us in touch. And while some of the exchanges were certainly colourful, I think we should have a circular table here that we don't pass the paper around because get no answers, no answers. Round the house and mind the dresser. Do you understand that? Old proverb in country parlance, which I'm proud to represent the country people. Debbie McGuire, you still have two and a half minutes. Are there any further questions? Thank you. You'd I don't like have, to ask? but I can't get answers for the ones I asked. Could I ask again? Explanations were more detailed with this exchange between Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster and Commercial Director of RTE, Geraldine O'Leary. Why would your husband come along with you at every single event with tickets that were purchased? Um, well, Deputy, I have had a um, very clear policy on plus ones. Yeah, but plus ones are all very well for the client. We also provide you with the information that across that 11-year period, I was responsible for bringing in revenue of $1.65 That's your job. That, that, Yes, it yeah. absolutely yeah. is my job. Over the period where I brought in 1.65 billion, we spent 0.1%, as you know. So yeah. as a cost of business, uh, compared to any other media company, any other tech company, I think this stacks up. For the record, my husband and I paid for our own hotels and flights to Chicago, and I'd like to say that for the record. The second part of all this started really the next morning, on Thursday, when the reviews were in. Ronan Kelly sifted through the papers for Morning Ireland. RTE's club membership was part of what Mick Clifford in the Irish Examiner calls vulgar and excessive spending on flip-flops and toy show the musical. Philip Ryan in the Irish Independent is wondering why selling ads for RTE requires such lavish schmoozing when the broadcaster has such high ratings. While Pat Leahy writing in the Irish Times says flip-flops are the least of RTE's problems. He says commercial realities will move more quickly than political ones and RTE is facing a financial crunch. He describes it as a scandal. Still on the flip-flops, the Irish Daily Star describes it all as a sandal. Within all the details handed over, the budget for Toy Show the Musical emerged as a major talking point. Later that day, more developments too as Marty Morrissey issued a statement about his connection with Renault. Look, can I, can I ask you to stay with me for just a second? Because I've just been handed a statement here from a colleague, Marty Morrissey. Here's Cormac O'Hara on Drive Time. I'm a sports reporter and commentator concentrating exclusively on GAA. In 2017, I was asked to MC a series of functions in Renault garages across the country. I sought RTE permission at the time to do this. This permission was granted. Marty Morrissey goes on to say... I did not seek a fee for this engagement. Many of the GAA-related engagements I do, I do at no cost. As I hadn't sought a fee, Renault offered me the use of a car. I accepted this offer. Since the recent controversy within RTE arose, I reflected on this matter. I concluded that it had been an error of judgment on my part to accept the use of the car. I returned it voluntarily to Renault on Friday the 23rd of June. Philip McMahon is an experienced creator and theatre producer. He gave his reaction on Morning Ireland. 
now Grant Thornton will conduct a new inquiry into the musical production. Here's RTE's Head of Strategy, Rory Coveney, answering questions from members of the Oireachtas Media Committee at yesterday's hearing, starting with Fine Gael TD Brendan Griffin and followed by Committee Chair Fianna Fáil TD Neve Smith. How can you justify 2.2 million of a loss and stand over it as be, that you're proud of it? That's an enormous loss. It's a disgrace. It's a scandal. We took a a creative and commercial risk to put it to, to try and, for the best of reasons, to try <coughs> create something unique for Irish families and for children at Christmas. It was unique, all right. The, the show, those who attended it, um, absolutely loved it, particularly children. It clearly wasn't a commercial success, but it wasn't from a lack of effort from everyone involved. How was it paid for? I paid for my, from RT funds. Philip, you're a playwright and director. People take a punt on all sorts of shows. And I think the frustration is about how public money is spent in the arts. And but we have really rigorous avenues to receive public funds if you want to. So the idea that at RTE could take a first time punt on a show with a budget of 2.7 million. You know, you would expect a musical to be in development for four years, seven years. Like nobody would expect to get 4,000 kids into a show a day especially in an already overcrowded market. But with more to come next week and the appearance of Ryan Toberty and his agent Noel Kelly in front of politicians, where does it leave RT this weekend? Minister for Higher Education Simon Harris had this to say on Morning Ireland on Friday. Have we turned a corner in this now? Government has provided, I suppose, two weeks for, for space, for answers. We've shown great patience because we value RT, we value public service broadcasting. We're getting pretty low on patience at this stage, being truthful. The drip feed is is doing extraordinary damage. You know, we need RT to get back to commissioning drama, not being the drama. And I think Monday is extraordinarily important. A new director general will start here. But look, what we're going to do is mm-hmm. we're going to send in people here next week to get the facts. And that brings me to my next question then, in, in, in terms of the funding for RTE, because in really the pressure on the, uh, the former director general, Geraldine O'Leary, the pressure on them was to maximise, on Rory Coveney, was to maximise RTE's commercial income because the licence fee wasn't going up. So the question is, if we want public service broadcasting, how much is government willing to pay for it? Yeah, look, it's the government's intention, and the Taoiseach said it as, as recently as yesterday, uh, to settle the question in relation to this. This is the government that established the Commission on the Future of Media. But let's also be clear, you can't have a situation where RT executives are crying poor mouth on one hand and on the other hand are being flahulock with taxpayers' money. Uh, and we need to address one to address the other. So we're fully committed to public service processing. and we're fully committed to RT and the value of its work. But RTE management have to restore the confidence, not just of government, of the people of Ireland that this place is being well run. And there'll be more on this over the coming days. But for now, we go back to Thursday and the devastation in the Northern West Bank as the Janine refugee camp was targeted. Tom Bateman is BBC Middle East correspondent and he joins me now. Well, I went into the camp or shortly after the Israeli military had withdrawn. It was the first opportunity that we as journalists had to safely access looking at the damage. And it is significant. It is widespread in the camp. One of the most striking things was so many of the streets in the camp had been literally torn up, reduced to sort of rubble and sand and dirt and dust. But, you know, that has left this feeling of carnage in the camp. I mean, one man came up to me and said, you come out here and you look at the streets, it looks like the pictures we saw from Turkey and Syria of the earthquake earlier this year. So that's how people were feeling. And there was, but I was there as the funerals were taking place. I mean, thousands of people rattled the streets, armed gunmen among them, men with Islamic Jihad headbands, anger rippling and surging through the crowd of uh, mourners in that city. What it needs is a political horizon and we don't see that. 
And in other distressing news too this week, earlier on Monday, the school principal of St Michael's College, Tim Kelleher, talked about the shock when two of his former Leaving Cert students died in separate incidents in Greece. We're absolutely uh, devastated, the entire community. Our deepest sympathies, obviously, and condolences have gone to the Ree families. And the school is open. We have a book of condolences there as a vigil. Uh, our support services to our counsellors are all available. And we've also contacted the National Psychological Service as well to help and support. We are heartbroken. We have a very tight-knit community. And these are two fantastic young men with their lives ahead of them. Bright, sporting, academic men. Looking forward to this particular trip for months on end. And the planning had been ongoing, not just in our school, but in lots of other schools. So I think there are hundreds and hundreds of families this morning plunged into deep, deep uh, sadness. Again, we are reeling with it. It's exactly the nightmare that every parent dreads when group holidays and big you know, groups of children go away. You just don't want to get their call to say your child is missing. But two of our families have had that call and we are devastated for them. Our hearts are broken. Principal Tim Keller there, paying tribute to the students, Andrew O'Donnell and Max Wall. A good place to take a break. Bémit Rash, again no made. Boy to Rash. Now the holiday season is really upon us, it's time to take a step off the hamster wheel of life and explore what is it that makes me tick? Am I fulfilling my potential? What is my mission? For some people, it's to get out there and explore the world. I want to contribute in the world and I want to have an impact on the world. For others, maybe it's enough to just dream about lying in bed all day and hitting the snooze button. But enough about me. Imagine taking on the world. Now I'm delighted to welcome to the show one of the more controversial global figures of the last 10 years. For Chelsea Manning, the former US soldier who leaked confidential files to Julia Assange's WikiLeaks, she talked to Brendan O'Connor on Saturday about her reasons for initially signing up to the army. Chelsea Manning, she was a hero to some, to others a traitor, but it's fair to say she's had an eventful life since then, including transitioning to a woman and also appalling treatment at the hand of her own army and her own government. Hi, Chelsea. Hi, how's it going? You seem like a very bright, kind of a quirky individual into, you know, skating, music, games and all this. You don't seem like the type to join the army. So why did you as a young gay man decide to join the army? You know, there was so many other quirky people, particularly, I would say, in the intelligence field, you know, more eccentric kind of people. Uh, I definitely worked with some pretty cool people. I think that there's certainly a, a stereotypes of what a U.S. Army soldier is. And then I was living with my aunt and I was working at Starbucks. I definitely wanted to jumpstart my life and my career from where I was. Like, I want to do something. I want to contribute in the world and I and, and I want to have an impact on the world. And also, I'd like to be able to go to college, you know, while doing it. Okay. So here you are in a war, access, as you say, to masses of information. And a lot of this information is obviously highly sensitive. Why did yeah. you decide to leak all the secrets you did to WikiLeaks? Uh, well, I mean, I, I didn't at first because so people are like, oh, well, they're, 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 what was the moment or whatever? There isn't really a moment. It's this gradual, slow process. It, it became very clear to me because I worked with this data, you know, 14 hours a day. There was an eventual re- sort of realization that this is not data. These aren't just records that I'm working with. Like there's actual people. I remember riding uh, in a Blackhawk over uh, over Zafrania in particular and really knowing and understanding this neighborhood from, from the data science perspective. And then looking down and seeing real people and seeing like, you know, a real, you know, environment in which there are schools, there are neighborhoods. There came this this gradual realization that really shaped sort of my understanding of what we were doing and the fact that our behaviors were causing these very unconstructive feedback loops. You know, so we are essentially making things worse. You know, the, the discourse in the U.S. under the Obama administration shift from 
one of this being the national conversation to, oh, well, I guess everything's okay now. This really contributed to me wanting to you know, reach out to the press. It became very difficult to communicate with journalists because they'd be like, well, tell, tell me about it. And I'd be like, I can't. I can't tell you over the phone. I can't tell you over email. You know, it's, so I, I kind of got desperate, kind of ran out of uh, traditional media options. And there's this moment where I'm actually uploading this stuff. It's not going through. You know, there's been a blizzard. The internet at my aunt's house isn't working. So I'm at, I'm at the Starbucks that's attached to a Barnes & Noble. The Starbucks internet was, you know, kind of slow and was inconsistent. So I almost abandoned the entire thing because I just couldn't upload in time. That's a sliding door moment right there, isn't it? I am genuinely fascinated by people who have a mission, burning desire to do something. Sometimes I'm just grateful I've left the house with matching shoes on. Autism activist Cara Darmody has met with the Taoiseach this afternoon. The Tipperary schoolgirl and her father Mark also met with HSE Chief Executive Bernard Gloucester yesterday to seek assurances about changes to autism services. So in Chelsea Manning's case, she made a dramatic decision. But what about for other people? What lengths will they go to? to fight their corner. For some, they are passionate advocates, even if they are just 12 years of age. Both Cara's younger brothers, Neil and John, are autistic. Autism advocate Cara Dermody has gained acclaim for the love she has shown for her younger brothers through her impressive campaigning to highlight serious gaps for children with disabilities. She joined Sarah on the Drive Time Airwaves. Actually, no, that isn't right. She burst on to the Drive Time Airwaves. Take a listen. Well, Cara and her father, Mark, are both on the line now. And, um, Hi, Sarah! <laughs> oh, Cara. How Hi, are how are you? And thank you so much for, for agreeing to talk to us today. It sounds like you've had a good day. Oh, yes, I've I had a really, really good day. And I decided to call the meeting the Rumble in the Concrete Jungle. And it was Leo the Lion versus the Little Squirt. And I'm not exaggerating here, Sarah, but it was definitely the greatest showdown since Muhammad Ali fought Joe Fraser in 1971. <laughs> so you were happy with the outcome then? Yes, I definitely was. He told me he has no objections to paying for private assessments. He said that he agrees with me, that I am not in the wrong at all, that I am 100% in the right, that more awareness needs to be raised on that, and he promised that change would be coming. Now, I don't know when change will be coming, but he was very nice to me. Okay, well, it can't have gone much better than that. Can I ask you, do you ever get nervous going into these meetings? There's plenty of people much older than you who would. Um, To be honest with you, Sarah, no, I don't, because I'm in the right here. There's 17,000 children just waiting for first contact from the HSC. And uh, I always explain to be these politicians, what's going on in Ireland is disgraceful and that um, disability discrimination going on in this country and that that is not how it should be and that what is happening right now is a disaster. So no, Sarah, I'm not nervous going into these meetings because I'm fighting for children who don't have a voice. So no, I'm not nervous to answer your question. You have answered my question you're a very powerful advocate for those children and their families. So that's a global figure, disrupting the world from a local Starbucks and a wonderful 12-year-old who's met the Taoiseach. I must examine my life a little more closely. And while you might be drawn to, you know, lonely roads or loveless marriages on stage and screen, your own situation couldn't be happier. Eileen Walsh, whose performances on stage and screen have garnered wide acclaim. And her husband shows his love for her in a really personal and unique way. I gather your husband, Stuart, is a hopeless romantic. 
Oh my God, Stuart is incredibly romantic. Uh, I'm not. So it's a wonderful balance for a relationship. I get things and he doesn't. <laughs> uh, he's very thoughtful and creative and uh, spends a lot of time preparing, like for press nights. Yeah. Everything will evolve around getting something to do with the play and a broken leg. <laughs> because that's what you say in theatre, isn't it? Break a leg. So I'll get little, little ceramic boys with with a little bird on their hand but he'll have broken the ceramic leg and refixed it with the cast you know it's that kind of thing Eileen Walsh was in studio with Miriam on Sunday in advance of her new production Girl on an Altar in the Abbey Theatre so Girl on an Altar he made an altar with a crucifix at the top but you pulled the crucifix and out came a little girl from the altar with a broken leg <laughs> I did one where he sent me um, he had no time he said and he just passed in a uh, a bag of um, jelly babies and I was like that's weird but anyway me and the cast we all loved the jelly babies <laughs> and that was all great and at the end he was like did you eat them all and I said yeah yeah no everybody had them and he mm. said did you not notice he had opened the pack painted each individual what? with a with a little cast but anyway sure I'd eaten it all I'm so ungrateful he's utterly unique I know the where world. did you meet him uh during disco pigs I had to get my hair cut and uh, he was a barber. He had a barber shop around the corner from the Traverse Theatre. It was um, love at first sight, I think, for both of us. And then I brought Enda back the following week to meet him again. Enda Walsh. Enda Walsh. And Enda got a terrible haircut. So Enda <laughs> had to wear a hat <laughs> from the, the festival. Yes. <laughs> Stuart was so busy talking to me that he gave Enda a terrible haircut. <laughs> but So when you so happily married, how do you approach, I suppose, roles like the one you're playing now? portraying dark, tormented women like Clytemnestra in Girl on an Altar. I mean, where do you get that inspiration from? Well, 20 years married, Miriam. I'm with him even longer than that. I don't know if we're happily married. I'm married the same as anybody else, you know what I mean? And there's ups and there's downs and there's really hard times. And there's he sounds times like a you... perfect saint, though. Like, oh, he how is. Could you I not? mean, he is, but he's married to me, so there's always <laughs> a drawback. I was working with Niall Buggy once and he said to me, you know, love takes different shapes, different forms. And whatever way he said it, it took the pressure off me mm. to have whatever I had considered perfect at that stage. It's amazing. We're still together, like 25 years later. Impressive. But what if you are still seeking that thing that makes you tick? That thing that makes you feel like, yes, I definitely belong here. John Toll and Sunday Miscellany from the Belfast Book Festival had more to say on this. I'm from Newry. But while I know the geography of this bit of Belfast, I feel at the same time at home and not at home here. I've never adopted the so you do, for example. You know the way that people in Belfast often reinforce the importance of what they've just said by adding a wee so you do at the end of a sentence. You do that. So you do. <laughs> I got in a Belfast taxi many years ago in the days when they still had radios to talk to the, the depot. And as we pulled away, this distorted female voice from taxi headquarters kept breaking through the static and crackle, calling out to the taxi drivers. <laughs> 42, 42. And it was so loud, so Belfast. And the taxi man had it turned up full. And after a minute, I said to him, how do you listen to that? And he never took his eyes off the road. And he came out with this immortal line. He went, your woman, aye, she's a voice like a fire in a pet shop. <laughs> and to be honest, quite a number of Belfast people have 
voices like fires in pet shops. Um, and sometimes some Belfast people, he said bravely while his wife hopefully runs outside and starts the car. Some Belfast people do genuinely feel that the world ends at the city limits. One of the greatest Newry men of all time was a man called Sean Hollywood. He was an English teacher, an actor, a theatre director and a political activist from Newry, very much involved in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And I remember asking him, with all his success in local drama, with all his legendary skills in public speaking, why he never moved away from Newry to Dublin or to London, maybe. And he said, people wouldn't say hello to me there. And nowadays, probably more people would say hello to me here in Belfast than would back in Newry. So I suppose that makes Belfast my adopted city. I don't know, do I adopt it? What's the procedure? Or does it adopt me? But if you Belfast people don't mind, I think after 30 years, I kind of belong here. So I do. The setting is the west of Ireland. Is that where you're from? Uh, yeah, I'm from Galway. Well, uh, uh... More thoughts too about where you're from and belonging were on the mind of Oliver Callan's guest, the new exciting voice in the Irish literary scene, Colin Walsh, on Thursday's programme. I was given out to by my cousin yesterday, so I have to say I was born in Dublin. <laughs> he said, you're rejecting your Dublin roots. So I was born in Dublin, <laughs> but I grew up in Galway. We moved to Galway when I was three. Is this the point so, where yeah. someone's seen your passport? And yeah, yeah. So he was going to like scan my birth cert and send it <laughs> into you to be like, you know, this is a, yeah, Dublin erasure. I have loath on my passport instead of Monaghan, and that's because... You know, there was the, there was the closest maternity hospital. So yeah. maybe we could start a campaign yeah. with some kind of um, like <laughs> car edge type thing that was stuck onto us. Uh, so you're a Galway fella. Yeah, it's always a bit kind of fragmented and certainly among my peer group, at least, a lot of people did emigrate when mm. the economic crash happened. That kind of shattered a lot of my friend group and kind of scattered everybody all over the place. So, you yeah. know, Australia, Canada, you know. The um, homecoming is, is quite difficult when everyone's scattered around the place. Yeah, I think like every family in the country will probably be able to relate to that in some sense because everyone has the person who left or the people who left. You're never the only one at the departures lounge uh, in Dublin airport, you yeah. know. Obviously, there can be a melancholy to that as well. But I remember chatting to a friend of mine and he was talking to me about how in Ireland, there's always a there's a kind of melancholy about the, the way that people have historically had to emigrate over the years. But he talked about it in a way that I'd never heard anyone kind of frame it before, where he was saying that he was making a documentary about people in Salford, very deprived part of the place. He's talking to people, why don't you leave? Like, why, yeah. why haven't you emigrated? They were like, well, no way. I mean, England's the greatest country in the world. So like, I'd never do that. <laughs> and he said that, like, the way that he thought about it was that in Ireland, we don't have that, but not in the way of, like, denigrating Ireland, but more like we've learned to respect ourselves as people enough to be like, I want, yeah, like I, I want more from life than, than what I'm getting at the moment. So I'm, I'm going to go out and find it. Whereas a lot of the time, if you're in a place, a major power like France or the States or the UK, a lot of the time you've completely drunk the Kool-Aid and decided, well, it can't be any better anywhere else. So I'm just going to, I'm going to be happy Leaving with my Leaving is never even in the Yeah, it's not even in the conversation. Yeah. Colin Walsh there talking about his new novel, Kala. He went on to talk to Oliver Moore about the friendships as novel, a story that centres on one missing figure. 
Kala. I am fascinated by the generation you're talking about and they're in the book because your teenagers is the rise of the Celtic Tiger and by the time yeah. you finish education, enter your professional life, it's total austerity and there's only one uh, route to life which seems to be just getting out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but you have the characters in the book as well who are sti- who stay there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how do they fare? Well, most from the group of friends, he is the, the one who stays. And, you know, in many sense, like he anchors the book in certain ways, whether it's geographically, he's anchoring everyone back to the to the place. He's, he anchors everyone to Kinloch. But also emotionally, I think he's the heart of this group of friends. And he has stayed in Kinloch. But with Mush, for example, the horizons of his world have shrunk dramatically since he was a teenager. So when he's... When he's a teenager with this group of friends, with Kala in particular, he's very emboldened by his friends. He's uh, he's adventurous. He's kind of getting up to all sorts of mischief. But when we meet him as an adult at the beginning of the book, you know, you're, you're really meeting someone who's who's quite broken. He's living a quasi-reclusive sort of life. You know, he works yeah. in his mother's cafe, gets up in the morning, does the work, has a few cans, goes to bed. You really get the sense that he hasn't really left this cafe for years, you know. It's a miserable uh, play. The texts coming in are the people are fascinated, listening in fascination to Colin as a book lover and a former neighbour, says Teresa Lynch in County Galway. Oh, hey, Lynch. how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And thanks, Colin, for putting Kinloch County Leitrim on the map. Yeah, yeah, I, I was waiting for Yeah, I didn't realise there was a Kinloch, and I was told very late in the day, and I was like, oh, God, I'm going to be up in some defamation case or something. You're going to have to tour that place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Categorically, this yeah. is not the place. It is uh, not Kinloch and Leitrim. It is not Kinloch and Leitrim. It's course. called Cala. Colin Walsh has been an absolute pleasure and I, I believe there may be plans to turn it into um, uh, something on the screen at some point because yeah, it yeah. feels cinematic and it would lend itself well yeah, would you be writing yeah. the screenplay if it, if I'm it, working on the yeah the oh. screenplays at the moment it's with um, the people who adapted Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hole so uh, not bad company them, so. to be in. yeah I mean <laughs> again like just out of body experience you know but yeah it's great the lovely Colin Walsh there with Oliver Callan this week and between the bit of Wolf Hall and the global disruptor and the schoolgirl advocate, I'm beginning to feel a bit inspired at this stage, as I'm sure Kieran Hanrahan is too. He's been lucky enough to be on the road down at the Willie Clancy School and here's a flavour of some of the music that he's been surrounded with. Unusually, we're going to start off with three flute players who pay a special tribute to their great friend Mick Hand, who was very much part of the Willie Clancy Summer School for many, many years. Here to play the Battering Ram and the Maid on the Green, it's Mick O'Connor, Catherine McAvoy and Paul McGrattan. Now, for this next part, I'm going to give you a clue. The word has three letters. It's a first name and rhymes with so. If, if she's listening there, will you tell her I'm stuck? On Thursday's Live Line, Joe Duffy was talking crosswords, real crosswords, when a caller rang in to say her elderly mother does the crossword every day. Okay, on 19 across, nine letters, listlessness and lethargy. Um, <laughs> if she could help me there. Last at you, Joe. Oh, it's latitude, is it? Lassitude, L-A-S-S-I-T-O. Ah, lassitude. Yes, scoundrels and knaves, oh, don't ask me. So this got 
remember the clue three letters down rhymes with row the man himself down on memory lane and he was joined by the crossword set herself from the Irish Times who had some shocking news for crossword fans Mary O'Brien Mary do you set do you set the simplex I do and may I just say that I'm very glad that lady knew the answer because I didn't how come you didn't know the answer? You set the thing. Because I set it, um, I'm just back from holidays, so I set it quite a long time ago. If you asked me to sit down and do the simplex crossword that I compiled a year ago, I wouldn't be able. So I completely <laughs> admire that, that lady's oh, mother. You're making me very cross and very down, Mary. Do you do it, Joe? Are you familiar with I it? I love crosswords. I love Scrabble. Oh, great. Yeah, I know people in here do crosshair, right? I completely... But can I, to my mind, the crosshair... It's easier than the simplex. Okay. Because the answer is within the clue if you have yeah, the code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas have... the simplex, you have to know the word. All the people who give out to me mm-hmm. for using what they call hard words, simplex means that the clues are simple and straightforward, mm. okay, yeah. not the words. I remember a long time ago now, when I was a probation officer, I used to visit Mount Joy Prison on a regular basis. Every morning in Mount Joy Prison, there, somebody would go to the governor's printer open up the Irish Times, print off about 60 copies of the Simplex crossword. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. The reason yeah. they loved the Simplex crossword was if you cut it, you know the cap prison officers wear? Yeah. So they would sellotape it to the inside of their cap. So when you were sitting in a chair at a gate, you take off your cap, take out your stubby pencil, your cap is in your lap. But what really is in your lap is a simplex crossword. And nobody can tell. And nobody can tell. I have never heard that. Now, that's wonderful. As heard on Thursday's Liveline. Words too were on Claire Byrne's mind as she ploughed through the baby name trends. We asked the CSO to dig deep into their records to see if we might guess what is behind Ireland's baby name trends right back from the 1960s. And sadly and misguidedly in my view, it appears that Evelyn is not the top name. Well, what can you do? And I'm joined by Sean O'Connor, who's a statistician with the CSO, and Jen Hogan, who's a columnist with the Irish Times. So, Sean, first to you, what kind of overall trends, Sean, can you see emerging? We have um, data going all the way back to 1964, and we can see the, the top three were John, Patrick and Michael, whereas for the girls it was Mary, Catherine and Margaret. And I suppose those names of John and Mary stayed in the top for intervening maybe 20 years so in 72 and 82 John was still the most popular boy's name and St Mary was still the most popular girl's name but then closer look or nearer to 2022 the most popular boy's names Jack, Noah and James where for the girls it was Emily, Grace and Fia Jen, naming children is a is a complex process isn't it? I mean I was saying what is it? Is it celebrity culture? Is it music? It's all of those things isn't it? For me it was very much what was going on in my life like I have a child named after Spider-Man maybe he's highly annoyed he's not actually called Spider-Man but he's called Toby and oh, Toby, Toby, like, Maguire. Toby Maguire even spelt that way yeah yeah so my eldest is Chloe and, and then a character in EastEnders Sonia had a baby that she wasn't expecting to have and now my husband goes we're not calling a child after an EastEnders character and then he saw witness childbirth and that was the end of that I could have called her She-Ra if I'd wanted so she was Chloe then we had Adam and the lady cleaning the ward that I was in after I had her she actually helped me choose his name then we had Jamie um, again it was kind of a popular name at the time probably influenced by Liverpool footballers if I'm honest, Luke is Jamie Redknapp. Well, that's what everybody presumes, but possibly Cara, <laughs> maybe more so. <laughs> Luke is number four, and he was named after a Jedi, <laughs> after the Jedi in Star Wars. Big Star Wars fans. <laughs> Think back. 
never mind about Thursday. Do you even remember Monday or even Tuesday? Maybe you were busy running around doing your bits and pieces. I can barely remember what I did yesterday. So we're all forgiven for scratching our heads on this one. But on a global scale, these were two significant dates as the world temperature records were broken two days in a row. We are dependent on imported fossil fuels. Minister Eamon Ryan was on the news at one. One of the first things that you can't ignore at the moment in, in this week is that for the first time in recorded history, the temperature of the globe has gone above 17 degrees, the average temperature across the world. At the same time this week, we're seeing real fears that the Antarctic ice sheet is melting at a rate that no one had ever expected. We've seen off the west coast of Ireland temperatures way above anything that we've ever seen before. Now, that could leave you with absolute despair. But there is also hope. One of the hope out there is that actually the renewable, the switch to renewables, to wind and solar power, is happening now at a speed and scale that no one expected. If you look, just even in the last week, for the first time ever, renewable power, electricity, has overtaken fossil fuel power within Europe and it's the same in Ireland. We're seeing something like 500 houses every week putting solar panels on the roof. We're seeing the retrofitting of houses going ahead of target. We're actually delivering more than what we expected to. So we're seeing the number of electric vehicle sales again ahead of target. So I just think it's important to have this context. One, understanding the scale Mm -hmm. of the crisis, the urgency of the need to switch, but not just sinking into despair to recognise that we can actually switch. We can actually move a different, better system. Minister Eamon Ryan there with Angus Cox and while his calm words steady the nerves, it is a clear warning to all of us, the effect on Mother Nature and on Ray Darcy on Wednesday. Now our next guest has huge ambitions to create 4,000 acres of Atlantic rainforest, native wild woodland along the west coast of Ireland. This warning is something that Matt Smith has heeded. He's on a mission to nurture our ancient woodlands as he told Ray. Matt Smith is in our Galway studio. Hello Matt. Hey Ray, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you. So it's hometree.ie. A native woodland charity. And Now, I know from chats with Annie Launa and Owen Dalton that a lot of the trees we see around us aren't native to Ireland. And we've done a lot of damage over the years to our woodlands. So, Atlantic rainforest, what does it look like? I actually brought a postcard in that a colleague of mine took a photograph of, and it's a drone shot of a part of West Kerry, and there's an island that's separated from the mainland, and it's covered in beautiful, deciduous woodlands, really nice broadleaf, sessile oak, willow, alder woodlands. And on the mainland, you can just see a few spruce trees and, and a very barren landscape. Uh-huh. And I think what you talked about was the sicker spruce plantations. A, they're not rich in wildlife, but my house was built out of them, so I'm grateful that someone... <laughs> them a long time ago. And then the other thing is sometimes humans are cast as the villain and and I think that we're all trying our best and we're not necessarily uh, the cancer of the planet. We are really supposed to be here. The native woodlands, why it's it's extra important is that the animals, the bugs, the bees, the bats, the birds, they've co-evolved over many thousands of years to live in harmony with the trees that also co-evolved. It really just kind of contributes to that kind of web of life. You're nice to us because we as a species, unlike any other species have changed our environment beyond recognition. Yeah, it's crazy. A third of the world expect to be forced from their homes in the next 20 years. Like climate change, you know, really has started. Right now, the Home Tree currently owns about 500 acres and we work with dozens and dozens of our neighbours to support them adding tree systems. But I don't think that can really kind of bog us down. I think enjoying the gifts that Mother Earth gives us to walk in the woods, swim on the beaches, yeah. hike the mountains, you know, be with our friends outside. Let's make the most of it. And while Matt Smith clearly believes in the power of the natural world. For 93-year-old Tony Bergen, a fixture at the Tullamore Agricultural Show for decades now, he knows that nature holds the key for us. Anne-Marie Kelly visited him for Countrywide. 
Do you remember the first Tullamore show? The first Tullamore show, I made a, a, an engine-driven barrel. I got first prize in Tullamore for it. I invented a yoke for castorating bulls, which I got first prize. Oh, I love nature. Nature is the provider of everything. That every aspect out there has evolved from nature. It doesn't matter what it is. The plane in the sky, the birds in the air, the fish in the sea, walking around the board. Nature has provided everything. I can't emphasize that people go back to nature because the enjoyment I had okay. in my 93 years. And if we only open our eyes and go back to nature again, <laughs> we'll eliminate a lot of problems. And finally... The positive impacts of nature have always been celebrated by the guests in the studio on Mooney Goes Wild. But this week, Derek invited an old friend, Sheila Nivuil, to come from the other side of the microphone. Now, if you'll excuse a little bit of self-indulgence, I'd like to introduce you to a colleague of mine, Sheila Nivuil. And talked himself and Ainley Launa. Sheila is retiring after more than 40 years of service here in RTE as a sound operator. And she explained how she started in secretarial services but quickly found her way to her beloved radio studios. She's worked on Mooney Goes Wild on many occasions, most notably the Dawn Chorus. She's been a fantastic colleague. Well, earlier when myself and Aina were recording, Sheila popped in to tell us she was leaving and to say goodbye. And she was just about to leave when I said, Sheila, why don't you pull up a seat and tell us a little bit about the time you spent here in RTE? I have been... In RTE now since November the 3rd, 1980. They were looking for secretarial staff in RTE. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. I used to sneak over to the radio centre because I loved the radio centre from the very... I got to know a few of the people here and I answered an ad for sound operations. At night, I went to Kevin Street and I did three years there and I got myself a diploma in radio studies. And were you the first woman to become a sound operator in RTE? I was the first woman that did everything. I was the very first woman on the day. It's 42, it'll be 43 in November. And so what will you do? Are you sad? Very sad. Oh, I grew up in this organisation from you were a youngster in like 20, 21 years of age all the way through all these years, you know, you'd all the people you'd meet on the way and I saw the best of radio. I enjoyed all the programmes, enjoyed working in the radio centre. And what will you do now? Be up in Donegal more. We'll be up on Errigal Mountain before very long and Walking on muckish and everything. And I'll be on Carrick Fen and I'll be listening out for the corn creek. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just couldn't get a night's sleep for the corn creek. <laughs> Sheila, that's a big game up. Tamak Fogel and Tamak Mabala Homohadaris. Tanyarts and Yulthari Fuma Ellen Chen. Oh, Tanyarts. I guess that's it. And You were a sound operator quite often on Mooney in actual fact over the years. I knew you so well. What was your best moment or your most exciting moment? Or- well, I was. With you for the Dawn Chorus a few years ago in Studio 10, all day through the night into the morning. That was probably the best moment I had with you. It was very exciting setting up all those circuits from around the the globe. Oh my goodness me. It was so good that I said to one person one day, there was, you know, when the, the fabulous African circuits that we had, you know, the sound was so good that you could see the colour. Is that strange? You could imagine the colour in those countries and the exotic birds and everything else. And then as the clock moved on on, and then we came into Europe and now we were listening to the Dawn Chorus in Europe. Up in Norway, my God, I just loved the sounds in Norway. and, And then... I had a circuit. And where was the circuit? 
back in Carrickfin, only, yeah, only two yeah, yeah. miles from my from, own from, house. From the Cornquake. Yeah, yeah. I have a house down by the lake shore at home, Lanyure. We have our bedrooms upstairs and the windows are all thrown open, you know, listening to the sound of the, the lake and the, the sounds are fantastic. And every so often I hear the sheep on the hill. And then one morning I was lying there in the bed. The next thing I hear the cuckoo. And I was going, oh, this is fabulous. So I ran out up, up to the dormer, had a look out, you know. And so between the bleating of the sheep and the lambs, and then you'd hear the, the cuckoo, which carries, the so, cuckoo. carries so well. Oh, it yeah, carries yeah, beautifully. Yeah. Whatever pitch carries it is, it really carries. Yeah, 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 indeed. Yeah, that pitch yeah. of the cuckoo is amazing. As Sheila, we're going to miss you. Ni veda le he da ri And the very best of luck from yeah. all of us. Thank you very much indeed. I just dropped in to see you all. I'll only stay a while. Sheila Hara, Bich Kabadale, Lu Olenagat, in the hail. Well, that's our lot for this week. I'll talk to you next week on Playback, Akadishan, Sloan. I'm happy to be back again and greet you big and small For there's no place else on earth just like the homes of Donegal